Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room with some very special folks that join us every week, so don't miss out. Join the chat room today. All right, Ravinder, it's time for you to give that wonderful welcome to all and uh, extend the invitation to join you in the chat room. Yes, everyone is welcome in the chat room. We have a great group of people and some really excellent uh, conversation. And sometimes we get some really interesting ideas coming out of there. And I would like to see you in there, too. So do come join me at uh, provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Just say hello, and then you can participate if you want to, or just observe whatever works for you. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Now, if you happen to catch this show on one of the other networks, uh, uh, because it is a syndicated show, it goes out on a number of different networks, and you're not catching it live, or maybe you're catching it here on a replay on Sunday or late at night uh, here on CTR. If uh, if that's the instance, what's the value to the chat room? You, you can still go and, you know, check in, in the chat room. As I said, you know, we do have questions and things like that posed in the chat room, and we come up with answers. We also do provide l- links and, you know, depending whatever we're talking about. So maybe it's a direct link to a bonus gift or a direct link, you know, for more information. But, you know, we'll provide that within the chat room very frequently. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely worth we, checking out. We also very often show uh, some kind of a movie we do. Uh, in the chat room of our guest, and that that's available, that replays as yeah, well. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think it's really good to see the person that you're l- listening to. It gives you a whole different perspective. So that's All one right. of my favorite spots. Okay, good. Do join us in the chat room. In our Spotlight of the Week segment, this week we turn our attention to having a sense of purpose in life. I think just about everyone who might listen to this show is at least vaguely familiar with Rick Warren's book, A Purpose Driven Life. The most basic question everyone faces in life is, why am I here? What is my purpose? Now, most self-help books usually suggest that people should look within at their own desires and dreams. But for Rick Warren, it's a different starting place because he believes that we must look for what purposes God has for each of our lives. For Warren, real meaning and significance comes from understanding and fulfilling God's purposes for putting us on earth. Now, not long ago, we hosted Professor Jay Garfield on this show. And for two hours, we examined the meaning of life through a variety of lenses used by people throughout the world, throughout history. Not everyone, or for that matter, every so-called system, seeks to put God at the center of the meaning of life. Indeed, for some, meaning is all about their contribution to the welfare of family and mankind. 
For others, it's about tasting the chocolate, going for the gusto, living and living fully. And for still others, it's about mind, self-awareness, and or ascetics. Now, the list goes on and on, but our purpose here today is to ask this question. Do you have a personal, well-defined meaning of life? Now, why would I ask that question? Well, according to a new study published in Psychological Science, feeling that you have a sense of purpose in life may help you live longer and healthier, no matter what your age. Quoting the leading researcher, Patrick Hill of Carleton University, quote, Our findings point to the fact that finding a direction for life and setting overarching goals for what you want to achieve can help you actually live longer, regardless of when you find your purpose. So the earlier someone comes to a direction for life, the earlier these protective effects found in the study may be able to occur. Close quote. Now, quoting Science Daily, the researchers looked at data from over 6,000 participants focusing on their self-reported purpose in life and other psychosocial variables that gauged their positive relations with others and their experience of positive and negative emotions. Over the 14-year follow-up period, represented in the data, 569 of the participants died. That's about 9% of the sample. Those who died all reported lower purposes in life and fewer positive relations than did survivors. Greater purpose in life consistently predicted lower mortality risk across the lifespan, showing the same benefit for younger, middle-aged, and older participants across the follow-up period. Now, if you haven't quite formed some definite meaning for your life, some, here it is, clearly defined purpose, well, perhaps consider this. Albert Camus once stated, uh, you will never be happy if you continue to search for what happiness consists of. You will never live if you are looking for the meaning of life. And Joseph Campbell added this, life has no meaning. Each of us has meaning and we bring it to life. It is a waste to be asking the question when you are the answer. So what are we to think? Is living into ourselves sufficient to be our life purpose, discovering ourselves as we go along every day? Or should it be much more deliberate and defined? Your thoughts on the meaning of life, Ravinder? Oh, give me a nice, simple question. There's the meaning of life. Actually, this is something that, like most people, I've thought lots about. But in particular, you know, after Lorna Byrne was on the radio show, and I asked her for what her angels, you know, could tell me about it. Um, and I asked her, what's my purpose in life? And she says, you don't have one purpose. And at the time, you know, that took me back a little bit because you start looking for, you know, why am I here? As though there is one definitive answer. But I, as I said, I thought about that a lot. And I realize I have got lots of purposes and the purposes can change as time goes on. Um, so when I was a young girl, you know, part of my purpose was to be a good daughter, a good sister, you know, um, to do my best at school, to just be the best that, that I can. Today, you know, I have be a good wife, be a good 
um, mom, um, be a good caretaker for all the animals that we have. Um, I have the work that we do too. I very much enjoy the work you and I do together. So that becomes a whole different aspect. But even that evolves as time goes on. You know, there was a time I simply did the cleaning around here. You know, that, that, that was my job and I wanted to do that to the best of my ability. Today, I'm constantly looking at ways to improve what it is that we do. And I've, you know, got lots of ideas of my own as well. So I think the purpose to life is to be the best that you can be at whatever that may be. You know, to fully appreciate everything that you have. Um, to actually spend time being appreciative, to give as much as you can, to maximize your talents and abilities. You know, if you're a great musician, go out there and play. You know, you don't have to be the one digging in the garden. Do, do whatever it is that you are best at. Bring that, because together, if everyone is being the best that they can be, then I just think we'd have a fabulous world that comes out of it. Reminds me of that saying, all that I am is a gift. Yeah. And uh, the only way I can repay that gift is by being the best gift, the best at all that I am, and giving it back to the giver. I think that totally sums it up. Okay. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Diane Collins, and we discussed her work in the book, Do You Quantum Think? Christian wrote, A Great Mixture of Quantum Thinking. <laughs> All right, Jerry wrote, I like what Diane had to say despite the mix of physics. Mark wrote, Diane Collins shared her ideas in what she calls quantum think. I enjoyed the radio show and thought Diane was a pleasant and sincere guest. That said, while I consider myself spiritual and think that the classical materialistic worldview confines us in so many ways, I disapprove of how Diane has borrowed from quantum physics such ideas as the observer effect and changing energy levels as in Quantum Leak. While she said she doesn't base her new worldview on the science behind quantum physics, it sure sounds to me as if she is, in fact, using these ideas in quantum physics to justify her views of the observer effect within our own lives and how consciousness has primacy over and can change reality. Mark, you know, I I had some of that I shared some of that concern myself. Tony wrote, There is too much non-science in the words of those quoting science to support non-scientific propositions. Why not just say this and that without searching for some lofty framework to hang your observations on? By the way, Doc, I love your inner talk CDs. Well, thanks, Tony. I appreciate that. Candace wrote, I love Eldon Taylor and his radio shows. CE wrote, I've been playing intertalk programs in my office while seeing my patients for the past 10 years with amazing results. They have a profound, transformative effect on listeners. R.B. wrote, I have purchased several of your CDs from my family, and we have seen good results. My daughter recently improved her testing scores with a positive exam CD. Thank you. Vita wrote, Hello, Dr. Taylor. I have been playing forgiving and letting go and releasing fear, doubt, and feelings of hopelessness and helplessness in a continuous loop on iTunes nonstop on my computer for the past five days or so. And let me tell you, I feel different. I feel motivated. With an incredible amount of energy, I feel inspired on fire. And I feel compelled to help people along. These feelings of mine are in complete contrast to how I felt prior to listening to your CDs 
where feelings of hopelessness and learned helplessness pervaded my mental landscape. And I feel more creative. Thoughts have been popping into my head that don't normally surface. Well, that's wonderful, Vita. Go with the feelings and just have fun and enjoy. Don't you think, Rev? I do. I really like that one. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com. Or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, Inhabiting Heaven Now with Andrea Matthews. Now her copy reads, quote, Andrea promotes authenticity and the authentic self in every endeavor. Andrea believes, as the old Buddhist saying goes, that the seeker is that which is being sought. What we don't know, have forgotten or repressed, is the fact that the seeker is the soul and the finder is also the soul. When we get this, we can really cease striving to know what I am, we are, God. Close quote. Now just imagine a world without a moral dilemma, a world free of fear, a world that is truly heaven. That's what today's guest offers. Andrea Matthews is a licensed psychotherapist with a thriving private practice, offering transpersonal therapy to her clients for the past 17 of her overall 30 years experience as a therapist, manager, and a supervisor of therapists in the substance abuse and mental health field. She is the author of three books, Restoring My Soul, a workbook for finding and living the authentic self, and The Law of Attraction, The Soul's Answer to Why It Isn't Working and How It Can, and her most recent, Inhabiting Heaven Now, the answer to every moral dilemma ever posed. Now that's a big one the answer to every moral dilemma ever posed. You know, we're going to get into that. (laughs) So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Andrea Matthews. Hi, thank you so much, Eldon, for having me on the show. I really do appreciate it. I've been following your work for a long time and really like what you do and how you serve, and I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you and your audience. Well, thank you very much. We've been looking forward to this indeed. You know, we like to get at three things with our guests, Andrea, who they are, what is the message, and how do we use it? So, you know, to begin, please tell us a little bit about yourself. What was your childhood like? Were you popular in school? What were your passions then, and have they changed? Um, You know, it's interesting. I'm going to start with the last one first. One of the things that I thought of when I was nine years old is that I wanted to grow up to be a philosopher. Now, I don't know where I got that word, (laughs) but but I remember telling some people that I wanted to be a philosopher when I grew up, and so I am. So that's an interesting thing. Um, Yeah, childhood, uh, I lived in a uh, New England area, and uh, then uh, when I was nine, moved south. My parents divorced and uh, came to the south and was hated for being in the South and being a Yankee, <laughs> and uh, sort of rejected for that, and uh, the fact that my mom was divorced, we came down here during the civil, civil rights, and I happened to have one of my very best friends was uh, African American, and of course, so we got egged and rocked and all kinds of things like that as we were growing up, and, and uh, so there was some unpleasantness there, but um, I sort of, what they say in the South, I got religion when I was a teenager, and uh, and um, and it was uh, an experience for me to sort of come into something that gave me some sense of peace. Um, but as I took that journey, it gave me less and less peace and more and more morality. And and so over time, I've 
I went I went to a therapist one time who told me that I was uh, using the Bible to, as an excuse to not see my life. And I thought that was very profound when he said that. And, and he said, I want you to go home and read the Bible and, and pick out some of your favorite passages and say, uh, see, see what you think they mean. So I started doing that. And lo and behold, here I am today, many, many years later, having read many of the texts of the Bible from the root language and uh, found out that it, they don't, by the root language, mean anything like what we've been taught they mean. And having read many of the sutras, of the, uh, the Buddhist sutras and the Sufi sutras and the Bhagavad Gita and um, studied those as well. So, you know, I've come a long way in terms of understanding that really, basically, what's being said by every one of those texts is the same thing, and that is that we are divine beings. We've forgotten who we are. Interesting. Are you? Do you consider yourself to still be religious? Religious, no. Uh, I would say, and I'm not even. I don't say I have any one religion. I'm sort of a mix of Taoism and Buddhism, and uh, you know, a, a Sufism, and so there's a mix there. A lo- lot of uh, Christian influence there, but not really anything I can pin down to something specific in terms of religion. So no. But I'm very, very spiritual. I, I, I'm very much engaged in my spiritual practice every day, all day, every day. So, Okay, well, let's, let's, let's begin. I mean, your book, well, let's just take where your bit begins. It suggests that our moral system was conceived out of fear, and I quote, we formulated our morals based on fear, close quote. So please flesh this out for us, and if you will, do so on a, on a larger global basis, not just through the Western Christian view. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that regardless of religion, let's just go way back before religion ever started and talk about how we came to a morality in the first place. Um, and I think we've got a great metaphor for that in the story of the Garden of Eden. It's just one story of many stories, but... Um, when we look at the root language of that, what we find is that we were actually hypnotized into a belief in, that we were separate from the divine. And we tried to intellectualize that into understanding that that because, that if we're separated from the divine, there must be some reason for that. Well, it must be that the divine is good and we're bad. Um, and therefore, we began to live our lives from that perspective, striving to be good so that we could reconnect to, with something we thought we were separated from but we've never really been separated at all. And yet, that whole process, as, as we'll talk about more and more throughout, I'm sure, uh, will lead us eventually back to a new place, which will be the full creation of form. But, but uh, so morality came to be a way of sort of trying to get back to something we thought we'd lost. And, um, and we were afraid that if we didn't, um, do right, let me just put it that way, if we didn't do right, then we would um, have severe consequences. And we began to connect the dots between, you know, uh, I've made a sacrifice to the gods, and um, therefore I had a good crop this year. And that's what we began to say, that okay, that sacrifice meant I got that good crop. Um, and when we had a bad crop or uh, we weren't able to have children, or we couldn't uh, got becalmed on the ocean, or whatever. We began to think, well, there's some punishment inherent in this event. I must not have given the right sacrifice or prayed the right prayer, and so we began again to connect the dots. And that's the same kind of thinking that a child does. You know, if a, if a parent gets, if parents get divorced, 
very often the child says, well, I did X the day before they tell me about the divorce, therefore maybe it's my fault that they've got a divorce. And of course, there's no correlation at all, but the magical thinking of a child says, I'm, I'm, I've got to have some sense of control over my life, so I make these imaginary ways of connecting dots that don't really connect. And so in our early days, we were thought very much like a child, and we, so we connected dots that don't really belong connected. And um, so we began to connect, say, well, if you're good, you'll get good results, and if you're bad, we'll get bad results. And, of course, then when we get to the book of Job in the Bible, which is one of many texts uh, about how, how people suffer, um, the, what we see is that it's not, there is no correlation between Job's goodness and whether or not he suffers. So there's a, there's a very interesting connection that we've made about that, and so it is very fear-based. And it goes back way before religion ever started. Okay, but now let me just straighten something out here for me, because okay. Job's story does show us there is no correlation between uh, punishment and behavior. Exactly. And yet you're suggesting that it is our fear that our behavior is attached to a punishment. So, I mean, doesn't Job's story actually... Um, interdict that uh, that premise and and give us you know a juxtaposition. Actually, yeah, and, and the story, if you look at the root language in that book, is is very very interesting because really what's happening there is that Job is confronting his own image of the divine, uh, not really the divine, but the image of the giant divine. That's a beautiful poem that talks about um, the depth of a person's being when they're going through suffering, what goes on inside of a person when they're suffering. And, and we can see him just, you know, pounding his fist saying, this is not happening as a result of my behavior. I didn't do anything. So what's up here? And, um, and, and, and when he has to actually confront what we think of when, you know, the traditional version of that is that he's confronting God, but actually what we see when you look at the root language is that he's confronting his own version of God, his own image of God, and what that, it says it started out like the hippo who could, you know, eat the grasses on any land just because he was big enough to do that and nobody was going to try to stop him. So that's Job's first image of God, is that God's just big, and whatever God wants to do, God can do it. And I'm using the word God, not to, right. I don't typically use that word, but since that's the word that's used in the text, I'm using that word. And uh, and so it, so what he finds out is that this, this behemoth, this um, big hippo that he's thought of, is actually feminine in nature. And by feminine, I don't mean a girl. I mean inner. It's the inside. It's not the external. It's the internal and that he's been very, very afraid of his own internal uh, machinations, what's going on inside of him. And so he uh, has, has made God the same way. So God is this hardened person, just like Job is, has become very hardened to his own internal stuff, if you will. And, uh, and, and so what Job has to do is get in touch with that internal stuff. And as he does, in the end, what happens is that he names his daughters, his sons are not named. He has new children, and his, his sons are not named. His daughters are named, and land is given to them, which is unheard of in that time. And uh, and then each one of the names of the daughters has a significant spiritual meaning that has to do with taking delight in life, finding finding your inner world, the sort of essence of yourself, the perfume of yourself. And it uh, it's just a delightful read when you can see through 
to the deeper meaning in it. So really what, what the book is talking about is a, a person getting in touch with their inner self and thereby um, being able to make contact with a more authentic spirituality. Right, right. So it, it, it does contrast to this whole idea that uh, we're miserable, pitiful, pithy creatures who, for all intent and purposes, are saved not by our acts, but by the grace of God. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. We, we have a hard break. When, when we come back, I want to I flesh out the idea that uh, you have. I, actually, we're going to need definitions, I guess, on what you mean by morality. Okay. Uh, we're speaking with Andrea Matthews about her life, her books, and Inhabiting Heaven Now. You can learn more about Andrea by visiting her website at Andrea Matthews. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-M-A-T-H-E-W-S-L-P-C dot com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. The praise for Elton Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say. Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Made a wrong turn once or twice. Dug my way out, blood and fire. Bad decisions, that's alright. Welcome to my silly life Mystery
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're visiting with Andrea Matthews about her book, Inhabiting Heaven Now, The Answer to Every Moral Dilemma Ever Posed. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have special meaning in their lives. Their life songs, if you will. This often provides some really interesting insight into our guest. Now, we just played some of Perfect by Pink. Why is this song important to you, Andrea, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, it has everything to do with how we measure ourselves, and I and I think that that whole measuring of ourselves is, uh, that's the problem. We're too busy measuring ourselves instead of just living our lives, and uh, that song really sort of declares that and says, you know, I don't need to pay attention to other people's judgments, and I don't need to be thinking about um, my, making my own self-talk really negative. I need to be enjoying myself and really living life to the fullest and telling myself how how beautiful I am because I truly am. So I really love that song for that. You know, when I uh, when we did the research to bring the song to the air for you, we discovered that there are two sets of lyrics. Yes, there are. <laughs> <laughs> we chose the clean version of the lyrics. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you did. <laughs> All right, well... Before the break, you and I were discussing you know, what exactly morality is. And I guess before we go too much further, um, you know, in this discussion of morality and virtue, what I'd like you to do is share your perspective on our modern cultural relativity. And you're the philosopher. So say versus the platonic virtues for Plato maintains a virtue based uh, eudemonistic conception of ethics, that is to say, human well-being is the highest aim of moral thought and conduct. Contrast that, unpack that for us. Yeah, I, I think that uh, Plato and others, not just Plato for sure, but uh, he was definitely one of, the, one of those uh, foundational people that we refer to when it comes to morality, um, are, are operating out of the duality trance state, something I call the duality trance state. And that's a state of hypnosis where we believe that we're separate from the divine and we operate as if we're separate from the divine. And so uh, when he talks about morality being the thing that we should strive for that's going to create our well-being, he's coming from that premise. And and that's a premise that I don't agree with. And uh, I, the, the in terms of culture now, I want to sort of, compare and contrast here a little bit with in terms of our culture we do the same thing that plato does only with less actuality <laughs> we, plato actually tried to live a moral life i think we we are filled with judgment of all kind about our neighbor and our you know other people and uh, people we know and people we don't know and um but we don't necessarily live up to our own hype so uh this judgment thing comes from that idea that there's a right way and a wrong way. And um, I'm not sure there's a right way and a wrong way. I think there's an authentic way and an inauthentic way. I think there's such a thing as true and false. I'm not sure there's a right and a wrong way, though. And I think that's sort of where I would want to sort of fit in the middle uh, there and just say when we're operating out of the duality trance state, and we, I mean, it's hard for me, as much as I've worked on this whole idea it's hard for me to still not use that language. Sometimes I still find myself using that language because everything in our lives has been categorized into one of those two categories, good or bad. I mean, good food is good, lovers are good, lovers are bad, good food is bad. You know, uh, 
money is good or bad. If you know, we have a good and a bad for everything. Everything. Well, let's let's enough. let's let's test the pudding there if we can. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm a student of the Course in Miracles. Uh, uh-huh. Have been for many many years. Used to facilitate uh, course uh, the course itself. Uh, and so I, I get the idea of non-separation, and, and I really, you know, I would like to get behind the idea of non-duality, but then, you know, I get hit in the head with two-by-fours on a regular basis, and they and they bring me back to, well, let me, let me just ask you about this one. This morning's news uh, was all about a pregnant Pakistani woman who was stoned to death by her family in front of the courthouse where she had just married uh, a groom who was not chosen by the family. And one of her, in a very graphic story on CNN, uh, one of her brothers put a noose around her neck and held her while other siblings crashed her head in with bricks. Now, okay, Cultural relativity would suggest, Neil Donald Walsh and I had this conversation once, and I strongly disagreed with him then, that if you're born in Pakistan and you're raised under this belief system, that what you just did, crushing your sister's head with a brick, uh, cannot be seen as you did anything wrong. And, and I tend to think that, and I want you to, you know, straighten me out here. Uh, I tend to think that there has to be more or less absolute values of some kind, or this world is never possibly going to come to peace. Uh, and, and, you know, depriving someone of their life this way is, is, there aren't words for it. To me, it's the most heinous of all acts. So here we go. The test is in the pudding. You say that you don't know if there's a right or a wrong. And I'm going to ask you, this Pakistani woman, this 26-year-old pregnant woman, stoned to death in uh, a ritual killing, an honor killing, is that right or is that wrong? It's neither. And uh, and here's here's the rub here. Do I feel a great deal of compassion for that woman? Absolutely. Do I wish that they had never done that? Absolutely. Do I, do, would I, if I were standing there and could have done something about it, would I have tried to intervene? Probably. Um, probably wouldn't have gotten anywhere, but I probably would have tried. I might have been dead too. But um, the idea is when we stop at right and wrong, we haven't gone far enough. And, and that's the problem with right and wrong. We can just go, well, that was wrong, and that's all we have to do. We don't have to go any further. We don't have to say, well, uh, you know, what was going on that created that wrong? What, what, what was happening in the mind of the person who did it? What, we, you know, how does a person turn themselves off, you know, to this is my sister that I'm killing? How, do, how does that happen? Those are the questions we aren't asking when we just stop at right and wrong. Well, I totally concur. I mean, but then I've got a history, a personal history, you know, in law enforcement, and you don't just stop it right and wrong. You know, there is apprehension, there is punishment, there is deterrence, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But it all begins by some codification that says, you know, this is right and this is wrong. 
Well, let me be really clear here. I'm not advocating for the world to just say, uh, we all know it doesn't really matter, so let's all go be turn on our sociopathic tendencies. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> no, saying... I'm sure you're not. <laughs> I'm not saying that we, we're... Uh, we need to just that that not not having good and evil sets us free to do whatever we want. What I am saying is that at base we are divine beings, and the morality that we've lived into was uh, you know it was intended to get us back to something uh, which was a connection to the divine, and it doesn't help because mo- mostly because we're basing our worthiness on this, we're measuring ourselves by a standard. That can't even be pinned down. You just got through saying it that in in you know in that particular country it's uh, the right thing to do to stone your sister. In America, that's not the right thing to do. So what is right and what is wrong on a global basis? It's up for grabs. It is culturally determined. So how do we know what's right and wrong? There, you know. Is well, I think it's standard? culturally determined, but I don't think it it should be culturally determined. I, I agree mean, with that. Uh, the I fact of the matter is, I, I, I do think that we have to hold out that there are values, uh, I'll use Plato's virtues, that for all intent and purposes, we should all be striving for uh, in order for us to maximize uh, what we call the highest sense of humanness. Yeah, I'm going to say it like Fitch, not Han said it, and I'm not going to quote him. I wish I could quote him exactly, but basically what he said was, that um, people think that uh, the great saints live in good, you know, out of that moral code, out of a, a sense of what's good and what's bad and what's good and what's evil. But actually, if they are living from that deeper essence of who they are, they're they're not even thinking about what's good or evil. They don't even know know about that, and yet they live ethical lives. So, um, and people would look at them and say, "Oh, that's a good person, and that's a you know a very moral person." But they don't know anything about that. They're just living from their divine essence. So that's what that's what he says, and that's what I'm talking about. Is that okay. without right. morality, who would we be? And I yeah. think if we could get down to the basic essence of who we are, we would be divine beings. So what you're saying, and, and, and don't let me put words in your mouth. I just want to be sure I've wrapped my head around this. What you're saying is that if we if we somehow uh, amend this sense of uh, separation and recognize that we are divine and that we have the ability to begin to think and behave in a divine way and in so doing we're no longer um, dealing with mundane uh, issues such as you know what's right and wrong but instead we're living at a higher level where just living at that level brings along with it the best of ethics and morality. Did I get that right? Yeah, and let me let me go one step further with that. No, um, please do. The, with uh, the word righteousness and is used by Jesus in the Bible over and over and over again, and traditionally that word is interpreted to mean what it sounds like. It's righteousness, right. you're supposed to be a good person. And I, let me be clear here, I, I only use the Bible in this book because it's the book that people use to assert that we are split off from the divine and must go through certain rituals to, to be reunited with the, the divine. And even then, we're not really reunited with the divine until we get till we die and go to heaven. So uh, I've used that book for that purpose, though I could find the same stuff in the Bhagavad Gita and some of the Buddhist and Sufi sutras. So, um, But, you know, from that text, the word righteousness um, is dikasuvna, which means man as he ought to be, and it's rooted mm-hmm. as dikaios, 
and the root word that's a that's a dikaios is the root word and it means only Christ truly. So that when Jesus is talking about righteousness, he's not talking about living a good life. He, in fact, he says your life, your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees, who were the most righteous of the land. So what he's saying there is you got to go deeper. This is not about uh, your behavior. This is about you finding out who you are at your deepest essence. This is you finding out that you are the Christ nature, the Buddha nature, the, uh, what the Bhagavad Gita calls the divine self. You know, you, we are those things, and that's what he was trying to teach. So um, that's what I'm trying to talk, talk about as well in this book. Okay, since you brought the Bible up, I'm going to have to ask you this. Joseph Campbell saw much of the Bible as the, you know, I think he called it the literature of the spirit, or more simply, you know, it was just powerful myth. Uh, for Campbell, you know, he, we, we tend to read and understand literally. That's, that's how he saw it, mm-hmm. instead of realizing, you know, Plato, Confucius, Buddha, and Jesus, who speak of eternal values that have to do with the centering of our minds. So, you know, we're caught in the literality, and, and, and you kind of addressed that just a minute ago. So here we are. You, you not only discuss the Bible, since you brought it up, but you spend some time discussing the battle between God and Satan. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask you, do you interpret the Bible in that sense do you believe that most people are interpreting the Bible literally, or do you see it more as a teaching story containing a defining myth, perhaps about ourselves and the good and evil within, um, in light of you know Job, uh, something we spoke about in the in the first segment of this show? Yeah, I, I mean, I think would I say most people see it literally, probably, and actually most people don't even read it. If you want to know the truth, most people just <laughs> listen to their pastor and think they've read it. Um, but uh, that's what I would say. I don't have the statistics on that, but that's that's my opinion of it. And having been involved in that segment of the world for probably 10 years, I, that's the basis of my experience. But do I think that the Bible is literal? Absolutely not. I think it's wonderful, beautiful, amazing poetry that tells us metaphorically so much more than we've ever thought of it meaning literally. Yeah, great, wonderful. I share that. You're, you. Uh, I'm gonna have to ask you this before we get back to your book and and the underlying notion that we are divine. Uh, you're a psychotherapist, so you're both familiar with uh, Freud and psychology and a lot of the contemporary data exposing what we think of as the evil side of humanness, uh, the so-called Lucifer effect, to use the words of past APA. President Philip Zimbardo, what do you think about the suggestion that within us all is a latent potential for evil? I think within us all is a very unlatent potential for blindness. Willful blindness? Blindness, yes, uh, unconsciousness. Uh, and I think that is the definition that is used. In the root language, again, I'm going to refer back to the Bible, but uh, in other texts as well, you find the same idea that that it's our unconsciousness that keeps us from experiencing who we are as divine beings. And and the word, e- even if you look at the word uh, Satan or the devil in the Bible, what you find is uh, diabolos, uh, which is the way, the, at the root language, it is the way in which we throw a thing out without regarding to where it falls. I mean, we can throw out uh, lots of information if we throw it into the unconscious. We can throw out our awareness of who we are as divine beings. We can throw out 
um, our compassion. We can throw out all kinds of things. So, yes, I do believe we have the potential for great acts of self-harm and other harm, yes. Would I call that evil? No, I would call it blindness. Blindness, interesting. All right. Let's do this then. How is it that you find that we can inhabit heaven now? Well, uh, it, the the definition of heaven shifts quite a ma- uh, quite a bit from what we understand heaven to be when when we look at the root language. First of all, um, and I'm going to use the Bible again and again. I'm using it only because it's the book that some people so often quote to assert that we are not divine beings. So uh, Luke 17:20 20 through 21 says that we can find the where exactly we can find heaven, and it is inside of us. So with that as sort of a baseline. Uh, we can go through several definitions that Jesus gave us of what heaven is and isn't. Um, it, it, I mean, he compares it in lots of ways to lots of different things throughout the whole uh, gospel, lots of little stories he tells. But I've picked out three in the book. One, one is the one of the wheat and the tares. The other is like the one of the woman who is cooking up um, a bread with leaven in it, and it, she cooks it into three loaves, and um, even then... Somehow it grows over itself into a kind of oneness. So, um, and then the, the parable of the mustard seed that's it's so tiny that you can hardly see it, but you plant it in, it becomes this huge tree that the birds of the air can nest in. Um, but my favorite is the one of the wheat and tares, where there's, and I'll go into a great a, a lot of depth about that particular story in the book. That, Share it with us here. Yeah, so the story goes like this. It's... Um, there's a guy, and he has a farm, and he's planted some wheat, and his uh, workers come and tell him one day, you know, there's a bunch of weeds out there, and they call the weeds tares. So there's a bunch of weeds out there, and with the weed, and he, he says, well, an enemy must have planted that. And they say, well, what should we do? Should we go pull it up? And he says, no, 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 don't do that now, because if you do, you might pull the weed up with it. So let's just wait until harvest time, and then we'll go and, and pull, the, pull the weed up, and when, when we separate them out, we'll throw the tares into the furnace. And um, so a lot of people translate that traditionally and literally as a, an end-time kind of um, separation of the good from the evil, the, you know, the bad guys from the good guys, right. where the good guys go to heaven and the bad guys go to hell. But when you look at the root language, what you find first is that the definition of heaven is oranos, which in its root language, it starts off being the sky. So you could say, well, heaven is the sky, or you could go a little, a little more poetic and say, Heaven is something above us, some, something trans, uh, transcendent. And uh, let me stop you for just a second, sure. Andrea, just for clarification. When you say root language, you're not speaking of the Hebrew. You're talking about the Aramaic. What What do you I, mean by? I'm speaking of the word. Each word has its own etiology, and yes, right. many of them do go back to Aramaic. Some of them go back to the uh, to uh, Aramaic being ancient Hebrew. Some of them go back to the more uh, to the more modern Hebrew. Um, and um, some of them just go back to different, um, slightly different Greek terms that mean uh, a little bit different than what we think it means. So when we're pe- the people are translating the Bible... So when you say the root language, what you're saying is you're looking up a root. Yes. So if it goes to the Latin language, that's what you're talking about. If it goes to Greek, if it goes... Okay, all right. I'm just, yeah. I just it's, needed yeah, that for Yeah, each word has its own ideology, yeah. but it's also... Yeah. Um, poetic and metaphorical as well so it's a right. kind of mix I didn't mean to interrupt you i just you know no, needed that's a that good question i'm glad you asked it so um, go on yeah so so we we tend to think in those terms that that you know there's that 
place up in heaven far away where, where God lives, and we don't get to go there until after we've suffered through planet Earth. And if, we, if, we're, if we're good, we go there. But what this uh, says, like uh, Aranos means, uh, at its root language, it means the order of things eternal. Jesus goes back and explains that particular parable in Matthew 13, 36, 43. So if you're interested in following up on this as a listener, you can definitely find that in Matthew 13, 36, 43. And what he says is that uh, there's going to be a harvest at what's called the end of the age. But when you look that up, when you really study those terms, Santilia is the word for end, and it means completion. It doesn't mean end. And an age is an incessant and perpetual process. It's not, you know, that there's an end coming one day where something's going to happen. There's an incessant, perpetual process that defines heaven. Heaven is an incessant, perpetual process within us. It's not something that happens once we die. It's something that happens all the time while we're here on earth, and it is at its root language, the order of things eternal. So there is an ordering force inside of us, just like you mentioned Carl Jung a little while ago. Carl Jung says that the self is the, 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 the source and the goal of life, and that, that our, you know, it is who we came here as, and we're trying to get to that again. You know, what happens in the process, and as we age is that we identify, we put on an identity that isn't who we authentically are, and we have to get back to, if we're going to be happy, we're going to have that numinous experience that he described as the only therapy there was. <laughs> if we're going to have that, we have to get back to something more genuine inside of us rather than uh, working on just an identity. And that's the exact same process that's being talked about with the terminology of heaven. So, you know, when we, so how do we begin to live in heaven now? To go back to your main question was, we began to get in touch with that incessant perpetual process within us. The, the incessant perpetual process within us uh, for many people is, uh, you know, a turmoil. Uh, one moment, uh, maybe, you know, it's a static, and then the next moment it's a, it's a mood state that uh, is maybe, say, depression. And this, The world that we live in today seems to be... Uh, for all intent and purposes, um, able to swing from one extreme to another extreme uh, without provocation, given you know uh, the slightest of instances. When when we come back, we have a break coming up. When we come back, I want you to explain, if you will, how it is that we do engage this incessant perpetual process in in a way that. Uh, unveils who we really are as opposed to just responds to maybe the neurochemicals and whatnot that are going on in our our system because of the way we live today. Again, if you'd like to know more about Andrea Matthews and her work, visit her site or check out the links on provocativeenlightenment.com. We have a film featuring our guests during the break. It's a good film. I want you to take a look at it. You can watch it in our chat room. So if you're not already there, now is a great time to get on over there. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back after a brief station break. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Andrea Matthews about her book, Inhabiting Heaven Now. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies, and from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great place for that. So please give me a like and join me at Facebook.com, Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N. T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, one more point of business before we return to the show. The Hay House World Summit is almost upon us, and I would encourage you to register for this wonderful event. It's free. It's online. uh, And there are some really super people that will be giving you some wonderful information, sharing freely. uh, And you you can participate from, you know, in your pajamas, from your bedroom, in the total relaxation and privacy of your own home. So do check out the details and register at eldentaylor.com. All right, now we just played some of the your second musical choice, Andrea. I hope you dance. I love this piece, by the way. Uh, what's the story about this one? Oh, I just think life is meant to be really fully enjoyed and and. We have a relationship. It's interesting. We think about life and self as the same thing, but I think it's we have a self that has a relationship with life, and I think we can dance with it. So that's where that comes from. I love the lyrics. I have to tell you, I you know I checked out those lyrics. I mean, this was something. This was a song I wasn't at all familiar with, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it it is now in my driving music. I do enjoy that music. Oh, that's all right. right. Listen. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the incessant perpetual within, and uh, perhaps I didn't make myself clear. I guess you know it. There, there are a lot of people today that uh, that we see, um, maybe because of our twenty four seven news media, that just uh, you know are are behaving in ways that I have never seen in my lifetime. And whether it is, you know, uh, going on a rampage and shooting a lot of people because you've been rejected by some girl or or some of the other heinous acts that we, we see in the world, um, it would seem that maybe our diets, our environment, our, our, our media, our, our, you know, our entertainment, the world itself is impacting us in a negative way. So what I meant by my question was, how do we accept the incessant perpetual within and in and, and, and that process, remove ourselves from this, the impact of what I see, what I've just described out there? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and, and it's the most important question we can ask, because there are people who are telling us that the way to... Um, you know, to sort of not be a part of this world is to say that the world is just an illusion and we don't have to be a part of that illusion and therefore we don't have to be, you know, we just can turn off the news and not listen to any of that negative stuff and therefore every life will be bliss for us. Right. And uh, and, and while I, I, I tend to say, well, you know, I get tired of hearing the really bad news again and again and again, I want to know what's going on so I can pray about it, but I don't want to... It, to be shoved down my throat, um, and I do think that there's a lot to be said for 
how much information we we are putting out there and i the thing that i think in terms of us getting worse and worse is i don't think we are getting worse and worse i think that we know more about what's going on with everybody so it seems like we're getting worse and worse but i think these same kinds of things have always been happening so you know and plus we have bigger weapons now so and and more um uh, weapons with more bullets that you can shoot at the same time shoot you know shoot all at once so i think that um in in terms of how we come to really be a part of the uh, the inter- eternal incessant perpetual process that is heaven it is a process in and of itself because just like carl jung talks about we can identify with something other than who we are so let me just give an example and and in the book i give you two different very specific case studies so there you know it says how to do it very specifically there but just briefly the um if I'm born into a house, uh, a home, where my parents are hyper-religious and cannot admit to any wrongdoing and, and are just always afraid of me being wrong or bad and making them look bad, then the slightest little infringement they might really get upset about. And, and uh, of course, this is just one case of a million different possibilities, but Um, In this particular case, I might start saying, well, I must be bad. You know, they tell me I'm bad all the time. I must be bad. And, of course, this all happens pre-verbally. We're not even being able to put words to it, but somehow this kid is picking up that he's the bad guy. And um, so what is he going to do? What has he got to do uh, to, to feel alive? Our identities make us believe we're alive. And so in order to be feel like he's got an existence, he's got to be do more and more bad things so that he can prove that he exists. So every time he feels abandoned, neglected, not noticed, he's going to do something else bad so that he can say, see, I'm still here. And all of that process is going on inside of him. So eventually this kid might grow up to be a serial killer because he has identified with badness and he's got to prove his existence over and over again by being worse and worse. And that, I mean, I've just described a p- possible scenario for a psychopath, but right. the, the idea is that we can identify with things that aren't who we are, and we can do the same with good. I can grow up to be the sort of scapegoat in the family. In the same scenario, I've got hyper-religious parents who, aren't, who, who, who can't believe that they do anything wrong. Well, now I'm going to be the good guy. See, I'm going to prove to them that I'm really a good guy, so now I have to live my life sacrificing for other people and living out of guilt, and guilt is the motivator for just about every one of my behaviors, and, and I'm pretty miserable inside, but I'm a good person, by golly. <laughs> you know, so that those two extremes are, are just examples of how we can identify with something other than who we are, and that's the journey Carl Jung talks about, it. and it is, there is suffering in the journey. And for us to say, well, we should, if, have, if we're going to live in heaven, we should not have any suffering, well, that belies the other concept that Jesus talked about in the Bible, which is hell. And, and that furnace that he was going to throw those tares into is not hell in the terms of an eternal place where people go and never, ever come out of it again. It's a process of transformation um, where, where we turn into, uh, you know, uh, 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 iron is melted down to its core or a, a piece of clay becomes a vase or... Um, dough becomes bread that's the those are the uh, metaphors that are used to describe the word furnace when we look at the root language so and we know that in hebrews 12:29 god is called a consuming fire in first john 4:8 god is love and and we also know that back then fire was the only kind of light those people had so 
if if he's put all that together, then God, is, then hell is being thrown into that all-consuming fire of love, whereby we suffer, whereby we understand a little bit more about the depths of ourselves. What drew Job into his inner self was his suffering. So we don't want to say we don't ever suffer. What we do want to say that is that is it has a great potential for transformation. And, and so in the book I talk about um, some, a couple of two different characters that are uh, composite characters of people that I've known throughout the years that have gone through the process of transforming themselves into a deeper connection to their divine nature. Um, and how they went about that was to start tuning in, tuning in, tuning in, tuning in. What's going on inside me? What is this about? What is the message of this? To really not analyze it but be with it so that it gives you information. Because all of our emotions are messages from, an, from our internal guidance system that are telling us, here's some things you need to pay attention to and, and, and maybe make some changes here and make a decision there and uh, choose what you'll do with this or that or the other. And all along the way, though, that whole process, just like Carl Jung says, the, the self is both the source and the goal, all along the way, that whole process is being orchestrated by heaven within, which is that... Um, that internal organizing feature, just like Carl Jung calls the self, which he calls in the Imago Dei, the image of God, uh, and compares it in great detail to Jesus Christ, he, he says that the self is the central organizing feature of our lives, so that the self is always pushing from within to get us to see something different. And maybe we have to go through some suffering so that we can see that something different. And so that's the whole process. It's like heaven is that eternal, incessant, perpetual process within us, and hell is in the employ of heaven, so that it also is a part of that process. That's very interesting, because what you've just described is a duality, heaven and hell, the yin and the yang, within, in a framework that is designed, if I read your book correctly, to lead us to non-duality. Exactly. That seems a little bit paradoxical. You want to unpack it for us yeah it is definitely paradoxical as are all the great wisdom traditions of the world and uh and i i think like jesus was one of the great zen masters he some of his uh some of his speeches particularly the summit on the mount is filled with uh cones <laughs> and uh uh so yes it is paradoxical to believe that we start out in a duality trans state in order to become non-dual um, but I think the whole purpose was when we, when, when, uh, we and I use that term very broadly, um, Elohim is a plural God, um, and the root language is the belly of a man, a man, a beast. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things in that root language. It's also a God and a false God. It's, it's all kinds of things all mixed up together. So what I've surmised from that, and you may or may not agree, but I think we are Elohim. We are the creators of us. So we created ourselves anew as form, and we wanted to bring form into full awareness of itself as divine. But, you know, when we stop short of that and say, well, form is the problem, the body's the problem, the body gets sick, the body sins, the body lusts, the body does all these things that get us in trouble, the body is the problem, and boy, aren't we glad to be getting rid of that at the end of this life. But actually, the body is the solution. (laughs) The body is what we're here to finish creating, and so... The duality trans state is a way of form coming here to Earth and going, wait a minute, 
Now, I'm not formless anymore, so what does that mean? Am I now different from formlessness? Am I the same as formless? What am I? Who, what? We've got to ask those questions. Just like any artistic endeavor, if I put something down on, and I am an artist, and, and, and I, I put, you know, dabble in some paint, put it on the canvas, and I think, yeah, no, I think I want that blue. I want, and I go with that creative process. So the creative process is one where we have to ask questions. We have to experiment with things. We have to try this on and see if it fits. And so there's lots of questions inherent in the duality trance state that, are, that have to be answered. So we have to walk through that and answer all of those questions before we can get back to the place where we understand that, yeah, you know, we've answered all those questions and all we've come back to is there is no duality. There's only oneness. And that's that whole process. And once we've come to that, really come to that, then the universe is on to a new creative endeavor. We will have finished creating form at that point. All right. You know, one of the things that I do is, of course, check out my guests before they come on the show. Mm-hmm. So I, I may look on the Internet, uh, who they are, and schools they went to, their Facebook page, and so on and so forth. And I happen to notice on your Facebook page that you have a, a test of philosophers. What philosopher would you be? And uh, actually, I took that test, and I was John Locke. But I see that you're Epicurus. Yeah. And uh, and what I'm hearing very much here, and, and what I've read in your book, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is essentially coming down to a state where, um, you know, happiness is what it's all about. Making ourselves happy is, uh, that's the highest goal. And, you know, I guess what I do is, I heard uh, a very prominent guru say recently if it feels good it's god talking to you and i almost literally you know my i mean my jaw dropped because with my background i can tell you about all kinds of folks who have done all kinds of things that they thought felt really good that we look on as not just criminal but uh, worse than just criminal so <clears throat> My question, in discovering ourselves, in dealing with the heaven and the hell within, uh, how are we to know which is the point, what is the point of reconciliation, what is the place of, of being, I don't want to say right, because you avoid that word, but <laughs> in where we need to be, as opposed to just uh, I'm going with something that feels good uh, in a very selfish sort of way. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I think a lot of our spirituality these days has turned into um, a, a way of just, oh, well, let's, let's try to find a way to just be happy. And I think there's much more to it than that. I, I, and that so that's A. I think that the whole idea of, uh, you know the law of attraction bringing us more money and more things and more better relationships and all that is 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 all about that thing about happiness so i I think there's so much more to life than just seeking happiness and what feels good could be anything uh cocaine can feel good yeah. crack crack can feel good uh meth methamphetamines can feel good um having a sex addiction can feel good, but it's not what that's not the essence of who we are what what I'm looking for is 
the difference between happiness and peace and joy. Um, we don't, happiness is a, can be a kind of contentment that is uh, satisfied with what I have or what I do. And that's good too. That's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't want people to live without contentment. But, but, uh, but when I look around at the world and I see the depth of suffering in the world, you know, most of us would say, well, that means that I shouldn't be happy because there's so much suffering in the world. When I look around at the world, what I say is, that's a part of me, and I need to own that, and I need to do what I can with it, um, so that so that there is oneness, um, so that it's not split off from me. And and I, anything that splits me off from other people and their suffering is not. I don't think that's the way to go. So if if um, if I'm living into an identity that says I must be happy, then I'm not living into my divine nature. If I'm living into that internal in, uh, incessant process, then I'm being with what comes up inside of me, and I'm really examining that not from the an, a mental perspective, but just an examination of self-reflection that says, okay, what's this? What's going on here? And what can I do with this? So that I'm being guided from within. You know, the 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 old um, metaphor of the, the, the Garden of Eden where there's Adam and there's Eve. Adam is the metaphor, in my view, of the masculine archetype, which is um, the externalized view. And the feminine archetype is the internalized view. And we need both working together so that what we do is we go inside, we find out what's in there, and then we take it and manifest it on the ex- on the outside, so that we're using the masculine and feminine in a in a togetherness, a, a coincidence of opposites, if you will. That while they're different, they work together and they work as one. So in in that way, then we're not we're we're going in and we do suffer in that process, but we also find deep joy and deep peace in that process, and we we move closer and closer to who we are as divine beings, and that process is. Um, very similar, as I've said, to, to Carl Jung's integration or individuation process, but also um, the one that brings us to that state of oneness where it's not, I'm not seeking happiness, I'm seeking oneness. I'm seeking myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I guess, Andrea, I, I really like the idea that you're putting forward, but I'm having a, a little bit of a, a, a bridging problem moving from... I, I deal with the struggle within, and that's very normal, ordinary, and in fact, part of heaven. Okay, mm-hmm. you you correct me if I'm summarizing anything wrong here. And that duality that I deal with on a daily basis is also a duality that I see externally, and I own those things in the external world that I may find reprehensible. To, at least to the sense that I, I take responsibility to do everything that I can do to improve that situation. Now, up to this point, I am like total, 100% right there with you. I, you know, But then the next step where we, we suddenly are one, that oneness point, I, I think I'm missing something, unless by oneness you mean that I'm willing to own everything in the world as a part of me and to do my best to make it all that it might possibly be. I do mean that. I do mean that oneness is that. But who knows what oneness will be once we are one? <laughs> you know, okay. 
Yeah. yeah, I don't know how that will evolve and, and what will look like, in, what will form look like once we, it knows itself as formlessness as well as form. I don't know that either, but I, I, I'm definitely headed in that direction, and, and, I, and, I, and I can't, the idea of separation is so hard. It, that bridging that you're talking about, it is very difficult. It's at times hard for me to wrap my head around, even though I've studied it for years. I think that it, you know, it is one of the hardest things we have to do is to imagine that we really are one, to imagine that everything within me is one. Uh, we, we just have such a hard time with that because we've been so um, steeped in this um, duality trance state where everything falls into one of the other categories of good or bad, and there's always a split off between consciousness and unconsciousness. So it is very hard to really wrap our heads around this thing. And I, and I totally appreciate that struggle that we have to do that because I have the same struggle. And yet Still, it I, is right there in front of us in our text, and it is right there in front of us if we look around at nature, you know, how, how it all seems to work together. And, and, uh, and we look at some things in nature, and, well, that tiger just killed that rabbit, so that's bad. Well, I don't know what's bad and good in that. I don't know what's bad and good anything, but, but I do know that there is some kind of order working there. And... And, and that order is within us as well. So there is an orchestrating power. As a matter of fact, there's a verse in Isaiah 55:11 in the Bible also that says, My word will not return to me empty. And most of the traditional, traditionalists interpret that word to mean, the, the word to mean the gospel or the, the Bible or something of that nature. But actually, when you look at the Greek language, the word is the breath. It comes all the way down to our breath. So what he's saying there is, I breathed life into you, and it's not going to return to me empty. I'm not going to fail. And so that is so much more hopeful, this totally failed image of this God that we have that the traditionalists tend to put forth, put forth for us for, to, to us to honor, which is going to send probably 85% of the world to hell. <laughs> and that feels like a pretty failed God. And uh, so when we think about uh, that whole thing, we think about the idea that maybe there really isn't any failure, then there is some kind of underlying process that's ordering this all that we may not understand, but there is something happening in each one of my incarnations that doesn't fail. I'm getting what I came here to get each time. And even if I'm only getting a single grain of the whole thing that I'm supposed to get, I'm getting that, and therefore my life has not failed. Well, I'll tell you what, for what it's worth, Andrew, I think you gave us the best definition of oneness that I've heard, and that's just simply, you know, embrace the entire world as a part of who you are, and then do, you know, be self-responsible, do everything that you can in a proactive way to make the world the way you want it to be. That's something I can 100% endorse, and that is the best definition that I've ever heard of of, of oneness. We hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and we'll take your phone calls. If you have a question for Andrea Matthews, and I'm sure you do, do call in. You can do that by dialing 1 877 Do stay tuned. We always save the very best for last. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com or bto.net and or bbs.com, we want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening.
Eldon's international best-selling book, Mind Programming, is a must-read if you wish to live awake in a world of sheeples. Film producer Jeff Warwick had this to say about Mind Programming. Dr. Eldon Taylor's new book is a must-read. If you've ever questioned your purpose in life or felt bound by a culture that's driven by mass media, you now have at your fingertips the knowledge and tools to break the chains of this cycle. Eldon goes in-depth to illustrate and expose how we've been programmed from birth by social constraints, and he methodically reveals the psychological techniques that advertisers, politicians, corporations, and the media use to control us. He then provides strategies and solutions to free your mind from these tactics and rise to a new level of consciousness. As you read this book, you'll feel the blinders being removed and will truly see the world in an entirely new light. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Andrea Matthews about her book, Inhabiting Heaven Now, the answer to every moral dilemma ever posed. We will take your phone calls in this half hour, so if you have questions of our guest, either give us a call or submit your question in our chat room. Ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward. Okay, Andrea, we just played a classical guitar version, one I particularly like, of Pachelbel Canon, or at least a bit of it indeed. Why is this music important to you? You know, it just resonates way down deep in my soul. Not only that, but it brings back a very pleasant memory. My son learned how to play the violin and came home and played that for me. And, of course, I was a, a wash in tears while he was playing it. <laughs> but uh, So, yeah, it's a very special song to me just because it moves me. I, I, I think, I don't know. I don't know anyone that doesn't enjoy Pachelbel Cannon. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's do this. Uh, we've got some questions that, uh, coming forward from our chat room. I want to tie up a couple of loose ends with you, though, first. Um, we, you mentioned earlier uh, the law of attraction. And, uh, of course, I've taken a great deal of of issue with how this law of attraction was marketed and what it offers and how it leads to so much disappointment. And uh, and I know you have also taken that on. You've written a book about it, indeed. So what I'm going to ask you is, you've got a pretty unique take on it. Share that with us. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's, uh, we, it was a good start in the sense that we are responsible to, uh, for our lives. Um, it does make us responsible instead of sort of casting that out into the universe and saying somehow the universe is just going to take care of me and I don't have to think about this. But I, but I think it, it uh, did keep us from really seeing what's really going on in terms of who we are. I think it's another version of duality where it says out there there's something that's going to make me happy and I have to make it come to me. Um, and what I believe is that, just like in the Garden of Eden, that metaphor, everything is already uh, supplied to us, and we just can't see it because we live in the duality trance state where we uh, believe that we're separate from the divine. So, and what I've, this, uh, what I've said, the actual law of attraction is that, is that we're attracted to and by all those things, places, people, events, and circumstances that will bring us closer and closer to knowledge of who we are as divine beings. Uh, so you share with me this idea that, uh, you know, if you just create a vision board and put your fancy car in your house and all these trinkets that you want to own on that vision board and paste a few affirmations around your house, on your refrigerator, in your bathroom window about how you're attracting all this uh, wealth to you and and then, you know, assume a supine position and turn on the TV that it just isn't going to happen. Right. <laughs> well, it could happen. I mean, you know, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen because you've done all that. Again, we're connecting dots that don't really belong together. Uh, you know, we we are uh, the soul is the central, the soul or the the divine self. Those are interchangeable terms to me. Is the central organizing feature of our lives, and it is going to attract to us, and uh, we're going to be attracted to all those things that are going to make us more aware of who we are as soul. And that's the journey, is we're here to find our, find the deepest essence of who we are so that we can bring form into its fullest potential as its divine nature. Okay, now, I also share with you, um, or uh, I agree with you, I should say, the idea that uh, if we look at this world as just an illusion, ignore it, and, and I've had several commentaries on this show about that, uh, We've actually had letters from uh, listeners who suggested to us as long as they have warm blankets and a roof over their head and food, they don't want to know anything about the evils of the world. Uh, they're creating their perfect world in their perfect space by just holding only the positive thoughts. Well, I, I take a great deal of issue with that. I know that you do as well. But there is also a, a valid argument here that we do indeed create our own world so you know in in the mix of that again uh, what might even appear to be somewhat paradoxical clear that issue up for us yeah i mean i think that we do create our own world and we are responsible for the choices we make but it's not based in trying to bring ourselves wealth or bring ourselves happiness from some external uh thing that's out there that's going to make us finally happy I think that um, w that process we described earlier um, as, uh, the, you know, the incessant perpetual process of heaven, which is not necessarily talked about in the first book, The Law of Attraction, but, but, but is the same idea, is that we are in a process, and th w that process is being organized by that self, that deeper self. And so we're, 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 we're being pushed by that self, to see who we actually are. So we might walk through some 
devastating experience and we might say wow that was that you know that happened to me because i wasn't affirming enough or why i was i was thinking negative thoughts but actually it might be happening to help us to come to know who we are as divine beings so if we take that other thing we're doing the same thing that the traditionalists teach only with different language we're saying you know don't look at that man behind the curtain he has nothing to tell you what look over here at me and let's let's talk about whether or not you deserve that punishment because you were evil or let, or because you thought negative thoughts. Either way, it's the same premise. Right, but at the, but at the same time, if you dwell on the negative and you expect the negative, well, then that your perception will bring that to you if through no other means or mechanism than your own expectation. Well, and your, and your choices will bring that to you. You will probably right. choose the things that bring more negativity to you. If that's your mindset and you've identified with things don't, good things don't happen for me, then that's kind of what I would call a victim identity. So you're going to live into that identity. And so you're going right. to choose the things that match that identity. Okay, so now earlier you said, and I'll wrap this up and then I'll, I'll go to a question out of the chat room. Earlier you, you, you suggested that paying attention to what I feel and, and what I think, not judging it. Now, the minute you, you added not judging, of course, what came to my mind was mindfulness and mindfulness training. Is that what you mean uh, as, as a part of the process of discovering ourselves is a kind of mindfulness training? It, it is. I mean, the word mindfulness can mean different things to different people, so I haven't used that term, but yes. Basically speaking, what I'm saying is um, our lives are, are a, an attachment to us. We are not our lives. We create our lives, but we are not our lives. And so we, you know, whatever we're living into in terms of identity, if I'm, if I'm um, identified as, okay, I'm, I'm going to be searching for, seeking for my, di my deepest self, then I'm going to be listening to my feelings and with, when I do that, I'm not going to be saying, well, that's a good feeling. I should, I should pump that one up, and that's a bad feeling. I should not have that one. I'm going to be saying, what is here? What's here? I want to see what's really in front of me and, and really look at it and really be with it, present with it enough to really understand what it's come to tell me. And only then, when we, once we've gotten the message, what it's come to tell me, then we can, you know, once once we've given the, the, a feeling has given us its message, it's no longer necessary, so the feeling goes away. But they're just messages, and we need to listen to them. Do you think we stand um, a high probability of deceiving ourselves about uh, what these messages mean? I mean, you are a psychotherapist, so we you're, you're very familiar with how... The unconscious, uh, for all intent and purposes, can give us uh, everything from explanations that are just confabulations to uh, mechanisms designed to protect us that deceive us at the same time. Yes. Yes, the answer to that question is yes, a mighty yes. We can deceive ourselves. I've definitely done it. I'm sure you've done it. We've all done it, and we're going to do it again. Um, but that's part of the process, too, is that self-deception is to, to run into that wall that's created by the self-deception and go, oh, there really is a wall there. I, I, thought, I, I thought I could walk through that, but that's a wall, <laughs> you know? And, and to be able to go, to, that's part of life. That's part of the journey of life is to be able to fool ourselves, 
ask the questions that fooling ourselves gives us and and then move on from there to something more realistic we don't get to go through a life without lots of mistakes unfortunately i wish that i could you know have, have lived a perfect life but it just doesn't exist and so these mistakes are opportunities they're yet another opportunity for the soul to intervene and say look here look at this look at this look at this I so totally agree with you. Inhabiting Heaven Now, the answer to every moral dilemma ever posed. Uh, Andrea's wonderful book, and it is a great book. Uh, I I highly recommend this book. It's a very lucid read, and as you can tell, she has a very solid grip on how we do indeed find our highest best. I I suppose I'm more of a Maslowian theorist in that sense, but how we do achieve the heaven uh, within and, and achieve it now. It's a great book, great read. Okay, let's go to the chat room. Mark out of the chat room says, I still need to be more clear on how Andrea defines authentic self. She said we need to strive to be more authentic than just uh, right or wrong. And how does authenticity relate to the question Eldon raised about the girl being stoned in Pakistan? Oh, great question. Great question, Mark. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that, first of all, authenticity, the authentic self, is that deepest essence of who we are. Now, my first book, Restoring My Soul, was a more psychological view of that with a spiritual ending. But, um, you know, from, okay, so you can look at it psychologically and say this is the self that Carl Jung talked about that, that is both the source and the goal of life, that is the deepest essence of who we are. Um, and uh, um, so authenticity means I'm living into that deepest essence. A lot of times we think in terms, we're so, um, you know, uh, fashion conscious and social conscious that we are thinking in terms of, well, I'm going to be real now. I'm going to tell you what I think of you. <laughs> you really suck, you know, that thing. And uh, But that's not authenticity. And nor is it authentic to say, well, I feel like wearing blue jeans to work, so I'm just going to wear blue jeans to work. And, you know, if they fire me, well, I'm, at least I can say I was being authentic. That's not authenticity either. <laughs> authenticity is that deepest essence of who we are. So in order to go there, we've got to remove all of the masks and costumes that aren't authentic. Now, how does that relate to the woman in Pakistan? Well, if I'm going to be authentic, I'm going to look at that. And, uh, Eldon, I really appreciate the way you described that in vivid detail. I really got the picture. I had not heard that news this morning, by the way. But I did. I, I, but when you described it, I was there. I was seeing that, and I, of course, I was wanting to do something about it. And the only thing I can do about it, that from this place right now, is to 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 give it my love, give it my compassion, hold it in my arms, and say, "This is also me," and 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 give it uh, prayer, uh, so that it it becomes enlightenment, it becomes insight inside of me, and and I believe that if I get insight about that. Then, uh, or or I can feel the compassion of that, or just be with the empathy of that. Then I'm also giving that to those people as well, because we are one. Because there's no way that I'm separate from those people. So in that sense, then that's what I can do about it, and that's how my authenticity recognizes it. To me, it's inauthentic to say, "Well, that's bad. Those people need to be shot, <laughs> you know, or put in jail, or whatever." Uh, that. Stops. It stops me from going any further. It stops me from feeling compassion. It 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 stops me from going to that deeper essence. So that's Can't kind you, of what I'm talking about. I hope that's answered your question. 
can't you really do both, Andrea? I mean, I'm going to come back to, you know, how you modeled this in the beginning. So, so we have heaven and hell within, and uh, that duality is uh, the duality we live with and, and uh, what we work for, and uh, and we see that duality without as well in, in our world. Now, I, I am loving the duality within myself, uh, that is that may give me an aberrant thought and uh, one that I choose not to claim and and we all have aberrant thoughts and, and we all lie uh, to each other and to, uh, and, and to others so you know the bottom line is I recognize this and I say okay you know I'm not going to claim that I'm not going to hold on to that I can love it but I'm also going to discard it. It's not going to be a part of my life. I have chosen to do something else. Now, if I'm understanding you correctly, that's the rectification process, the rectification of opposites, the middle pillar, the middle column, uh, the middle path uh, through all of the different literatures you've been talking about, uh, the Upanishads to the to the Torah. Uh, if I do that with myself internally, Am I wrong to also do it externally? Because I look at this Pakistani situation, and maybe I'm just, you know, to be faulted for this. And I I am unable to embrace it as something I want to hold on to. I am able to embrace it and feel great empathy both for the victim and for her groom. Um it is harder for me to feel that empathy toward her brother using a brick on her skull um, on the courtroom steps. I mean, it's just hard for me to do that. But I believe that I can do that if at the same time I can feel justified in wanting to remove that from the world just as I want to remove uh, a behavior or an aberrant thought from myself. Now, you, you know, tell me, is is that not also possible? Uh, it, of course, it's possible. Yes, uh, but I think that the process of of dealing with duality is not one where we discard things, but rather we integrate things. So I would say um, integration means I'm going to take an aberrant thought. I'm going to find its message. What? Why did that aberrant thought come up? Why is it so aberrant? What is it? You know what? What is that about that? It, you know, me, means that it is aberrant. Um, so that it's so unusual for me that I recognize it as aberrant. And what does that mean about what I'm? You know, what I'm shutting out or letting in to my psyche. And mm-hmm. so I can. Uh, w- what I would do with that is recognize that all feelings and thoughts are but energies. And um, they're just neutral energies. They have no, you know, other value beyond giving us the message. So what's going on there? And, and then I can take the message and integrate the message, and I haven't discarded anything. So in that same way, then, uh, I think about uh, Norway and their prison system a lot. I think about um, they, they send people to farms, and they teach them how to plant and grow, and they work with them through counseling, and they, they have a very very small recidivism rate there and i you know so I, I think that maybe we need to revise our thinking about what works and what doesn't work in terms of discarding things from the world and dis, and and our from our own thoughts 
It may be the word. Maybe that's a bad word choice. I'm looking for a better one, but I can't come up with one, so I'll yeah. just stand. I'll yeah. stand corrected. How's that? <laughs> uh, it's something I hate to see in the world, and or sometimes I, you know, may have. Uh, a thought that I simply do not want to claim. And so where did that come from? Like, for example, in this particular instance, I may well want to put a brick on somebody else's head. Sure. And and I admit to having those thoughts. And like sure. you, had I been there, I'd probably be dead because I would have interdicted. That's just, I couldn't have stood by and allowed that to happen. But in, in all of this process, uh, discard is probably the wrong word, I'm looking for a way that we find harmony in the world, a way that we find peace in the world, a way that the lion does indeed lay down with the lamb. And uh, and I, maybe that's Pollyanna, but I don't think so. And and I believe that that's what you're working for, too. So. Me too. Yes, I am. And I, I think integration is the way to do that. I think we have to think in terms of integration rather than... Uh, off-putting or putting something away or discarding whatever word you want to use for that. You, you know, your book used an interesting word I'm going to ask you about because it comes straight out of 1984. And <laughs> uh, I love Orwell, and yeah. uh, and I've written a fair amount about, uh, you know, a lot of the propaganda and the, the soundbite reasoning and so on and so forth goes on in our world today. But you talk about doublespeak when it comes to spiritual teachings. Oh, yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, you brought up the uh, Course in Miracles. Um, you know, I, I really love that work, and I read a, a good portion of it. I can't say that I've read every word of it. There's a lot of words mm-hmm. to read there, but yes, there is. Um, I, I do uh, I do agree with a great deal of what is said in that book. On the other hand, it starts off in the introduction saying, "Perfect fear, perfect love casts out fear," and uh, speaking of discarding, casting out works there too, and uh, and it and it. Uh, that what's come from that is that many people are saying now that they have to get rid of fear in order to have love. And that is not what that verse is talking about. It's talking about when you are have love, there is no fear. But but we got we get it reversed. And so the teaching that goes with that is a kind of double speak that says, Yes, there is oneness, yes we are divine self, but no we're not. We have to work on this thing and we have to get rid of the bad stuff. So and then you know, there's um there's in the lessons there, uh, the teachings, um, the teacher's manual and the student's manual of the mm-hmm. Course in Miracles. There's some of the exercises that our students are supposed to do. That one of them is um, that airplane didn't really crash. Right. I'm like, oh yes, it did. That airplane crashed, and those people died. They transitioned. You know, they're not they're not in body form right now, and uh, that that idea is creates a kind of there's a, 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 a reality and a non-reality, a duality. So it's, it's doublespeak again. So it's saying that everything is oneness, but no, it's not. It's, and it's really hard for us. I, I want to reiterate, it's hard for us to not speak in those terms because our heads have been so stuck in the duality trans state for so many centuries that it's going to take a while for us to not speak that way. So I'm not criticizing when I say that. I am recognizing it as doublespeak, though. Yeah, I, I think everyone uh, that initially comes into the course has, as a first exercise, denial of everything. The room's not here, the window's not here, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 you're absolutely right that uh, that does, in and of itself, set up a duality. 
uh, a duality within ourselves. All right. You know, I love your work. Andrea, I want you to tell everybody how they can learn more about you, uh, your website, where they can get your books. Uh, You have a wonderful radio show. You've got 45 seconds. Go for it. Okay. Thank you. First, thank you very much for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, you can connect with me on my website, which is www.andrea, A-N-D-R-E-A, Matthews, M-A-T-H-E-W-S, L-P-C, Dot com. Um, I'm in the process of having my web pay, uh, website redone, but when that gets done, I will be there'll be something there to tell you where to go. And uh, of course, Facebook. You can find me at Inhabiting Heaven Now. There, uh, I have several pages on my personal Facebook page, but um, also Andrea Matthews. Or uh, Facebook is Authenticity Central. You can go there. That's my author page. Um, and um, at my radio show is Authentic Living on VoiceAmerica.com. Um, been there for almost six years now. Just had my 300th episode. I've interviewed lots of really cool people. I need to get you on there, Eldon. All right. And, uh, and we're out of time, Andrea. Yeah, okay. I do, do follow up. Do go to her website. And I'm sorry we've come to the end of another hour or another episode of Provocative Enlightenment, but I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again same time next week. And until then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>